0: Hello, Richard Herring. Hello. You had your phone
1: nicked yesterday. I did, yes. That's Out right. of your hand. Oh, yeah, I did. It was awful by a, a man on a bicycle. But, uh, yeah, at the moment I have a Hitler moustache, as you may have spotted. I did. For my show, which is called Hitler moustache. I'm trying to reclaim it and see why people aren't allowed to have them anymore. But The guy happened to be a black guy, and so I realised I was chasing him down the street saying, stop him knocking off his bike and kind of holding up my arm to stop him and with a Hitler moustache. So I don't know how it looked. I think probably people let him escape thinking he was about to be the victim of a horrible race crime. So no um, one made so, any effort. To... So no one stopped doing it. He was lucky or I was pretty unlucky because there was a police van about 50 yards up but they were dealing with something else and didn't see him. But then they, I got. it was quite an exciting day. I got taken around in a police car. Child's um, dream. Yeah, it was nice. And then they put the lights on because they thought they'd caught him and they took me round but uh, it, all i had was it was a black guy with a black beanie hat on and right. they'd managed to find a black guy with a blue beanie hat on and that was it was close but it was i said well the color of the hat is wrong everything else is great you so nearly and 20 years ago we would have had our man but uh, luckily we live in the 21st century now <laughs>
0: I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long form interviews with stand up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic The World's Best Stand Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. But you still got the ride
1: in the police car. i got a ride in the police car and, yeah, and, you know, I've got probably a routine out of it. So the thing is being a comedian is even these horrible... As long as you don't get hurt too badly. Well, I had a fight in Liverpool about three or four years ago, which I did a big routine about, and it was in the main body of one of my shows, and then I've just written a book, which is a big part of. So if you have a bad experience as a comedian... You can sort of turn it around. So even though I've lost a phone, which wasn't insured, you know, I'm kind of hoping I can get enough capital out. And just to warn people, be careful with your phones. Okay. Hold on tight to them. It's kind of weird because you forget it's an iPhone, it's a nice bit of kit, and it's worth a bit of money. So if right. you had 200, 300 quid in your hand, you wouldn't kind of go around holding it loosely and waving it about. So in a way, you, I feel I deserve it.
0: Next time, are you going to strap it to yourself? I
1: might do. I was thinking of trying to put a bomb inside it. That's remote controlled, so the next time it happens, I can kind of press a button and it'll explode and he'll fall off his bike the next time it happens.
0: There's got to be an app for that. Uh,
1: Yeah, there should be an app where if your phone gets stolen, the phone just starts shouting, You're a thief, you're a thief in really loudly and you can't stop it. So I might look into that. actually someone's doing an app for something else for me, has asked if they can do an app. So I might see if they can sort that out for me. So then
0: you'll make even more money out <laughs> of this. Amazing. I would
1: do that for the good of humankind Right. not make money out. Okay.
0: So you you started doing comedy at school. You did like sketches yeah, for yeah, your yeah, assembly. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was sort of more into comedy than music, you know, so everyone else was getting into music and I was just buying Monty Python records. So a lot of the early stuff I wrote was Kind of like Monty Python. And then
0: you went to university, you were at I did. Oxford, I and was. you got involved in the Oxford Review. Yeah,
1: yeah. We, I partly wanted to go, I was kind of obsessed with comedy, and I partly wanted to go there because I knew there was comedy going on. So I kind of got pretty much stuck into it straight away, and, and very early on, met Stuart Lee. And we sort of started writing sketches together there, really. And that's kind of the start of that relationship. But we, it was kind of, there was a fortnightly comedy club there. So we, li- we were writing sketches, which was very unfashionable at the time. Uh, and we were trapped in this little world. But, you know, every two weeks you'd come up with three or four new sketches. So it was a great way of learning how to write and, you know, and having three years in isolation where no one was really looking at it. And so you got better and better. And we did the Edinburgh Festival a couple of times.
0: Didn't you do late in
1: life? Yeah, we did. That was quite an interesting thing, really. We did.
0: I should probably explain for anyone that doesn't know, this is a late night comedy thing that they do in the Edinburgh Festival they've been doing for years and certainly at the time it was an absolute bear pit. I've seen so many like Dara O'Brien's Simon Munnery people get you know just torn to shreds. I mean, I
1: think we didn't really appreciate what it was to be honest it was funny because we were getting pilloried all the time by the alternative comedians because they thought we were posh public school boys which none of us were. I went to a comprehensive school and just did well in my exams you know so that was what I was at Oxford Uh, but we literally did it because they were paying us £10 each to do it you know and so that was just an unbelievable fortune to us we kind of knew it might be difficult but The first time we did it, it was just at a time where basically alternative comedy stand-up had really taken over. It was 87 and stand-up had kind of won that battle and the student reviews were seen as kind of archaic old school things. But there was a big lot of resentment from the alternative comedians thinking Oxbridge were privileged and me be automatic or TV series and everything like that so we were the focus of this ire them having already pretty much won the battle of that they came to give a sort of kicking which I can sort of see completely understand why they did it and as an adult comedian you are a little bit sniffy towards student comedians and, and all that sort of thing but it does seem weird to me that a generation of comedians who believed in equality and sexism against sexism against racism were happy to blame some blameless 19 year olds and really give them a hard time as you get older you kind of appreciate what they were doing but it was actually it nearly made me give up the whole idea of doing comedy because it was weird to go I loved comedy and I wanted to be a comedian and then to go into a room where every comedian and all these people you've respected and seen are just shouting you and telling you are an awful idiot is quite a hard thing to cope with so it took me a long time to get over that I think actually.
0: Were you then after university you did bits of stand-up but you weren't really into it?
1: No I didn't really like it because I was really into doing the sketches we'd done at university and there was no real way of doing that once you'd left university and I was I didn't really you know I felt I worked better as I did a lot of acting and I did a lot of sketches and worked with other people and when I got up there on my own to begin with I just didn't really know quite what to do and Stuart started doing stand-up in the last year of university so he came to London with an act but I was kind of resisting doing it I think partly because of this experience in Edinburgh uh, and partly because I just didn't think it was my strength so I did it for a couple of years and then just it was going kind of all right sometimes but really badly sometimes and I just thought what's the point I started writing for radio and thought what's the point in doing I'm never going to do it again so it was quite a big thing I thought about six years ago I decided I was doing one-man shows again but they weren't like stand-up shows in my mind they weren't stand-up shows but they weren't that different, the stand-up shows. And I kind of decided to come back and do the stand-up circuit, which was probably the best thing. I really, really wish I'd done it uh, when I was younger properly because then I would have had yeah, 20 years of experience of being a stand-up rather than sort of six, really, of just being a solo stand-up.
0: Well, I'm going to come back to that, to when you started doing it again. Because in the meantime, so you said you started doing radio stuff, you were working on Weekending on Radio yeah, 4 yeah. with Stuart Lee, and then both of you started working on On The Hour, which, yeah, is which was Armando a, Iannucci's...
1: Yeah, to maybe prove the point of the people in Edinburgh. We'd met Armando at university, but we actually weren't very good friends with him, but he'd done Weekending for a bit, because um, it was quite an old, fusty satire, quite clanking, formatted show. I, re- I particularly really hated writing for it, but it was a good place to learn how to write for radio. But I think Armando came in and tried... To change weekending quite a lot, which and we fell in with that quite well. So, I think as a result of us being able to write stuff that wasn't to the weekending format, I think he thought of us to, as writers for On the Hour, which went on to be this kind of phenomenal, groundbreaking show and then know. turned into the day to yeah, day, which, which we didn't end up doing for various reasons. Right. But it was obviously Chris Morris and Steve Coogan, Armando and Dave Schneider, all sorts of people. So, it was an amazing that's Armando's always had that vision, I think. Of picking good people, and Steve King was a very mainstream actor at that time, just doing sort of Frank Spencer impressions and stuff. The first time I ever saw him was on a WH Smith advert, where he just went through basically David Bellamy, Frank Spencer. You know, I mean, he was good at it, but he was very mainstream. And I think uh, Armando saw something much more in him, which was obviously there, <laughs> and uh, and that was the show that obviously broke Steve. Uh, and that's
0: where was. Alan Partridge was in. Yeah, that's wasn't where it? you know.
1: So Me and Steve wrote the first things that Alan Partridge said. It's very much Steve's character, but we kind of wrote for it, which is a nice thing to have, you know. And
0: then the two of you went on and you got your own radio show on Radio 1, which was Fist of Fun, which then went on to be a TV show. Yeah. And Fist of Fun, because I remember that was one of the first sort of alternative stand-up comedy things, and it felt like a massive deal to us. Well,
1: that's good. I think it did to, I mean, I don't know how old you are. I think a lot of, you know, people sort of 10 years younger than us, or even younger, kind of, it was a massive deal. So I think a lot of teenagers watched it, but it's the same for me. I I haven't talked to them about it, but I've heard from, like the guys and the young ones that they didn't really feel at the time it was a massive success. But that was when I was at school, that was just a phenomenal success. I mean, much more than our show. But I think just teenagers will latch on, and I did as a teenager, will latch on to something and it's their secret thing and it means more to them. Whereas I think at the time, I, again, ironically, the BBC didn't really understand what we were doing and didn't like us really very much and so you know we kind of struggled through getting two series we got a series and then we got another series we had to change loads of stuff and then we were taken off and then we got this morning Richard not judy after that but it was a real struggle to get on and well i think we were almost not quite but we were almost the last sketch show where it was rather than creating a team of disparate people you know most sketch shows now they go oh he's good he's good he's good and they're a good writer and they're a good writer and they're a good writer it was very much our vision of what we wanted to do so me and she wrote it all pete bain wrote his bits and uh you know and then we got a team of people together that we really like working with uh, Simon Quinn like I was going to call him Kevin Eldon the actor Kevin Eldon uh, is his real name uh, and Emma Kennedy and people and Paul Putner and people like that started coming in so we got a, we got a team of people we really like working with that we'd chosen rather than being thrust upon us and I think it was a really pure great show but it's one of those things that's been kind of wiped there's a lot of people younger than us who, who it means a lot to but it's kind of not it's never mentioned in you know, I love 1990s Is comedy. No, we never, I don't really? know, They never repeated it. Uh, even when we had a, our current repeat on this morning, they often just didn't bother showing it on the Friday because of sport or whatever. And we already messed around, but it's never been on DVD. So it's on YouTube. And in a way, it's kind of this underground thing, you know, and it sort of suits both of us probably that we didn't I uh, sort of look at Little Britain and without thinking that we could have ever been that successful. But even if we'd had half that success, I think it would have... Ruined us both in really? different ways. Well, I think Stu would have hated all the attention, and I would have probably loved the attention, and it would probably have just. It's kind of interesting the in way that sometimes success can add different pressures to you and also send you in a different direction but because we weren't we've kept working both of us and are doing okay I would hope but we haven't had the pressures of having to do certain things. At the moment I can be doing a podcast that's one of the rudest things I've ever done because I'm not on TV and no one cares you know but if I was David Williams and was saying the stuff I did on the podcast it would be in the papers every single day it would be oh David Williams has said this because it's me it doesn't matter.
0: So you were doing Fist of Fun you were doing This Morning with Richard not Judy after that but you were doing bits of Edinburgh shows. Did you do like one of the first We Will Rock You type I did. musical I, based I on... I think I
1: did. I think I was the first. Which was? I did, I did Ra Ra Rasputin, because I was obsessed with Rasputin, the historical figure. And I, just very early on, I kind of thought it would be great to do a musical that was the life of Rasputin as if he'd originally written all of the Boney M songs and to sort of meld those things together. Because the great thing about the Boney M version of Rasputin is it's very, very historically inaccurate. <laughs> so I kind of just wanted to do something that would encompass all those songs. All those songs were in it, all the songs that Boney M did. And obviously it's a bit naff and disco and funny. And that then to try and tell the story of Rasputin but a kind of changed version of it. And it was sort of actually also a kind of slightly satire of uh, Charles and Diana at the time as well because it was all about a relationship breaking down and uh, a Rara Raspian lover of the Russian Queen, and in 1916 it wasn't so easy to shag a member of the royal family. It was all that kind of thing before all the tragedy stuff happened. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that was back in, like, 92 or 93. I did Are that. you not
0: tempted to reprise it? Well, they did, they
1: did think about it, you know, and um, then there has been a bony M1 come out now, but it didn't do very well, I think, called Daddy Cool or something. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, but, that's the
0: one that famously had um, Harvey and Javine yeah. who were... Uh, not that I read his magazine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that then they had it off with each other yeah. and uh, what's the chops? He was married. Anyway. Yeah, but, but yeah, so that was a more interesting story yeah. than the actual thing they came <laughs> up with.
1: So I think they would, to be honest, I keep nearly everything I do. You know, I keep copies of everything, but I don't even have a complete copy of that script. So if I did it again, you'd have to rewrite it. But I think it would be so complicated to do it officially and get the permissions. So yeah, it was but, good one of those shows. It was like the first solo Edinburgh show I did, so to speak, the first one I wrote that only I wrote. But so few people came to see it and yet so many people I meet go, I saw, I saw Rara Ashton. <laughs> so I think it's one of those things where more people have come up to me to tell me they've seen that show than I think actually saw it. <laughs> well, it clearly had uh, a big impression on did. them. It did. Well, it was, I think it was just a really great idea and it was a, a mixed match. So maybe I should I'll do it again. All right, I'll bring yeah, it back. next year.
0: Okay, <laughs> amazing. It's committed to tape now. Um, but you did, like over the years, you did other Edinburgh shows that were comedy plays that you yeah. were writing, directing like that. And then you started working on the Al Murray Sitcom. Yeah. Time, Gentlemen, Please. Yes. Writing and producing. Yeah. Was on Sky. They're showing it on Dave at the moment. Uh, Yeah,
1: Dave or Paramount. Yeah, one of those Um, two. It's kind of. That's one of the few shows that I've ever done that's been repeated endlessly. But because it never got a. terrestrial broadcast, it's still quite obscure, I think. But, but you
0: said that was really tough.
1: Yeah, because I mean, I wrote it with Al, and there were a couple of other writers that did a couple of the other episodes, but then I would rewrite, but because Al was in it, he, I would email him and say, if you've got a piece of material about this, and he, we'd sometimes do that, but I pretty much had to write, in the first series was 22 episodes in a year, and we got 13 episodes, and then they gave us an extra uh, nine episodes. So the, the last half of that, I had to write nine episodes in 10 weeks. It was very well paid, and it was actually writing one in a week meant my weekly wage suddenly became insane because I was getting well paid anyway and I was the producer of it but it kind of burnt me out really the second series was easy because it was only 15 episodes and we kind of spread the load a little bit easier but I think I'm probably the only person in the world who's ever written like an American style 22 episode series pretty much on my own you know usually there's a room full of writers when they do those things in america again it's one of the things that i'm very proud of that people go oh god i really love that you know but no one knows about it which is what is the case with nearly all my stuff you know the the same the stuff with stew it's kind of it's very underground that you'll get 10 people and one person will love it and the other nine won't know who you are you know so it's the same with time gents which has just come out it's just come out on dvd the complete thing so you can buy it and and that's not me even plugging because I don't really even get any money from that. So,
0: But that presumably is, in a lot of ways, that's the best way to be because it means you get all the benefits of knowing that people really <laughs> love what you've done, being able to survive off it, but without the insanity. Yeah, I think it's with. true.
1: I mean, I think I, in the end, I think I've got to 42 now and I do feel incredibly privileged the way my career is going and the fact that I constantly work and I can do exactly what I want and I spend half the year literally doing the live show that I want to do and I can make enough off that and plus the little bits and pieces I do here and there to have a very nice living and that complete artistic freedom and increasingly with the internet stuff I'm doing I'm just So I am lucky but I think after Time, Gentleman, Please where I'd really work myself into the ground basically and and earn enough money that I didn't have to work for a bit and it became very easy to go oh what's the point in doing any of this you know I've done these four series on the BBC and these two series on Sky and no one's even noticed them and and I think we both and Stu went through a similar kind of little wilderness period where people had kind of written us off and didn't like us and it's been interesting to see that's starting to really completely turn around. I mean, Stu's now viewed as the best stand-up in the country and, you know, obviously had his TV show and stuff, and hopefully, similarly, you know. I think we've both worked really hard at reinventing ourselves or at least starting again. And, and yeah, and now I'm older. I really see I'm incredibly fortunate. I mean, much more. I, I wouldn't change places with anyone, really maybe michael palin <laughs> but i guess
0: when you're 20 you, you want the glory and <laughs> yeah the, the... yeah but
1: you do but you know it was going that way and we could have turned into newman and Bedell or little britain or whatever and gone through the roof like that and it wouldn't have suited us i don't think there's a part of you think you know i spend a lot of time writing scripts and occasionally they get on and most of the time they don't and there's a part of me thinks it would be great if i was a little bit more famous that they just would definitely make everything i wrote and that's sort of the benchmark it is really is once you get to a certain level I mean, Ricky Gervais could write anything and it would be put on, you know. And the thing with him is I think he writes great stuff, so it's not like a criticism of him, but he could just fill an episode with him just shitting into a bowl and it would get on TV. So, uh, but, you know, then again, you have to think, but how many writers have been writing their whole life and never had anything on TV and how many people have struggled and struggled and not got anywhere. And so it's understanding your position in the world and realising that you're lucky and maybe that, like you say, being massively famous and going insane is not a great thing. And my ambition is really to work until I die or whenever that is hopefully a little bit in the future and sometimes if you get really successful that's it and then you disappear you know but I think I'm going in a straight line a slight incline up I think at the moment <laughs> but it's not I don't think it's going to get to the point where I'm doing Wembley Stadium or whatever.
0: After you did Time, gentlemen, Please, you were kind of still doing Edinburgh shows. You went back yeah. to doing stand-up at Edinburgh in the shows there. You yeah. did uh, Christ on a Bike and then Talking Cock, yeah. which was the one... That, it was like a male answer to the Vagina Yeah, monologues. I went
1: to see the Vagina Monologues and I just kind of found it really patronising and unpleasant and not that funny. And was sort of sexy. It was kind of against men. It was about, you know, and that's fair enough. That's what it was. It's a kind of feminist show, but it, there was nothing in it about men and women just having a nice time together. And I kind of thought, isn't that what most of us do in whatever combination we mostly have fun when we're having sex and yeah that show was about sex being kind of unpleasant thing. I was doing Christ on a Bike in the same theatre as the Vagina Monologues and loads of people going why don't you do a male version of that and I go no it's obvious it's obvious what happened there's no men don't need a show like that and then I really started thinking about it and really thought well actually men need it more than women because women talk about that sort of stuff all the time up to each other and men really don't and it was kind of really interesting to put it together so I wrote a show that was for men and women and realised uh, that most men have at least one issue that they're really paranoid and upset about so it's good to talk Talk about all those things. I did a big online survey and it was, yeah, it was actually kind of an enormously successful show. It got translated all over Europe and I did a book of it and I did it for two years and it was, um, it's a really good thing to do and it was more like a lecture rather than stand up and it was funny but it was It was kind of educational as well, I suppose. But yeah, it was a fun show to do, yeah.
0: And then round about the same time, you started writing your blog.
1: Yes, towards the end of that, yeah.
0: You've written a blog since then. That was, what, 2002?
1: It was, uh, yeah, November 2002.
0: You've done it every single day since then. I have. That's insane.
1: I know. (laughs) (laughs) I am insane. But I am. that's what I'm very much like, and I'll get something like that, and then I'm very compulsive about something. And I went through a phase where I thought I might do this for a couple of years, and then... Every day you just think, oh, but if I stop now... So now I'm sort of feeling I've got to do it for 10 years and then maybe I'll have a day. But it's also... I think if something, like, really terrible happened, I probably wouldn't want to write it, you know? So, again, it shows how lucky my life is that I've had seven years of... um, when I haven't had a day where something so horrible has happened that I haven't been able to sit down and write something funny. But
0: surely there's been days where you just can't be
1: bothered. There were a lot, and I think if you read the early ones, some of the early ones, it's about five sentences long, and you kind of think, well, to say I've written a blog every day is a bit of a bold claim, even when it's something very short. And especially to begin with, it was really hard, because you think, I haven't done it, nothing's happened, nothing happened. And now when I do it, I just kind of pick on something very quickly. So for yesterday, it was quite easy because I'd been (laughs) a victim of crime. So that was kind of pretty obvious. But when nothing's happened, you've just got to really think through and think, what can I write about? And then not even think about it and just get on with writing it. And so I try to do it in kind of half an hour, an hour, whatever. And that's why I kind of went back to stand up because of that as well, because I was writing these routines that just would never have thought of doing as a routine. But you'd write this thing and you think, that's quite funny. And early on, I wrote one about buying nine yogurts at a supermarket and the checkout girl went, oh, someone likes yogurt." And then I wrote a blog defending myself against that, saying I don't particularly like it. I was just going to store them in my fridge. And and then that escalated in the blog. And I kind of thought, then maybe that's a routine. You know? And that ended up being a routine that's like a 40-minute routine. But I would never have thought of doing that as stand-up in my life if I hadn't written that as a blog. So you find interesting things. And now it's very rare that I sit down and can't think of anything at all. There's been days, but I spend a lot of days just sitting on my sofa with my pants, watching telly and doing nothing. You know? But you can still usually, if you really think about the day, and you hung over all day and just nothing's happened to it. You will just find one thing that you can write about or run with even if it's just an email you've got or something you've seen on tv or something you read in the paper but i was i didn't really even know there was such a thing as a blog so i didn't really know what it was when i was starting i just thought i wanted to i just felt like you know it was that thing of little incidences passing by in your life and never being noted down and i often have written diaries but i'm you know let them go because you get bored of it but actually to have to do it for other people and people expecting to be there and just to record those little things that happen in life was kind of the original idea i think now the internet's got spread further and further it's all this internet stuff's a good way to get people into your stuff.
0: You've got a lot of regular readers to it, haven't you? You've so. got it's, this hardcore. Yeah,
1: I mean there's a few thousand that definitely read regularly. I, I think again it went through that period where I was a little bit in the doldrums and didn't know which way I was going and you know I felt like a bit like people weren't interested in me anymore and I kind of thought well this is a way to just maybe keep the interest going. It, and just it was for myself as much as anything, you know, and if people wanted to read it. But it turns out to be this amazing resource. I've just written a book about the year I turned 40 and if I hadn't kept a blog I wouldn't remember that there's things in there that I don't remember writing that's thing you go back and read it again and you find that this lovely story that you'd completely forgotten about and certainly would have forgotten about if you hadn't written it down and so it made writing this book about turning 40 so much easier because I just had all these stories that perfectly illustrated what I was concentrating on at the time and thinking about at the time you know and then you know like I say when I'm doing a pure stand-up show two or three of the entries will turn into the stand-up thing so even if you look at it like that it's, it's kind of spewing stuff out but if, if you write one funny thing a month and hopefully I'm doing more than that. You've got a show or you've got a book.
0: But also what I find really interesting about it is from the point of view of punters. So I've just read the book. I know a lot about you, <laughs> <laughs> Like I really... Yeah. More than a lot of my friends. And it's something that I find really interesting about it is... And it's one of the things I find so interesting about Twitter is if you know more about someone then partly just pure psychological phenomenon, you like them more. But also, if you know kind of intimate stuff about someone, it bonds you to them.
1: I think it may be. And on the whole, that's really nice. And it does. And it is kind of slightly confusing. A few people on the internet get a little bit too convinced about that. And, And most people completely understand the relationship between me as the writer and them as the reader. And they understand we're not friends even if they might like me <laughs> and uh, but then occasionally you get one or two slightly more obsessive people that are slightly scary but on the whole yeah I think it's nice that people do and have followed that career and because it has gone through in that Point where I was a little bit of a low, you know, about sort of six months in, I sort of split up with my girlfriend and everything seems to be going a bit wrong. And I think people who followed it all the way and seen this kind of gradual working hard uh, and and going through the various stages, you know, it is quite, it's like a little soap opera. I mean, I think it, it is nice that people, but that's what I really like about the internet, it's a really lovely community and people, you know, and Twitter, I think especially, is there's hardly any malice on Twitter. There's a little, the thing with the internet is you get those horrible people who, hate you or decide they hate you or want to spread bile about you or nasty, which happens a little bit. But on Twitter, it's all kind of quite nice and friendly and you have a problem and people suggest a solution to it. You know, that's why we like it about Twitter or something bad happens to you and people go, oh, that's a shame, you know, and it's kind of quite it's quite nice to have that relationship. So I think most people get the relationship between me and, and them. But I think the new book I've written is more even more personal, which might make people not like me as much. (laughs) Because, I mean, on on my blog, I'm very careful because even the book of the blog, I then go into detail about what was happening behind the scenes, but I don't write about really who my girlfriend is or what we're up to or what I'm up to when I'm single, you know. So the book has a bit more kind of honest content about all that sort of stuff.
0: Did you have to consult with any of your... Any uh, yeah, of your a little life? bit,
1: yeah. But I've changed everyone's kind of names and, you know, to enough details, I think. And, you know, and I asked people's... Some people were very happy to have stuff mentioned. But it's again, it's mainly more about me than about anyone else. And it's, I think with my comedy, it's all about pointing out my own deficiencies rather than hopefully laughing at other people's. And, and I think that's probably the inclusive thing about it. I found that with Talking Cock, it was just nice. People just appreciated going, oh, God, someone else has had that problem. Because, you know, I think for men especially, we don't talk about those things. And so, so many men just came up to me, like some a really hard guy with tattoos came in and said he'd left his cigarettes in the theatre, but I couldn't see any cigarettes. And he went, I thought I was the only one who had that thing, but I'm glad you said that. And then kind of went, <laughs> went out and you gotta kind of think it's nice that that guy has realised because you've showing your own vulnerability you know and, and we're not all human beings are very scared of showing their vulnerability but actually showing your vulnerability is what's going to make people probably warm to you and that's what makes people warm i think mean, especially in comedy it's what made I sort a good thing about the american office where the first series didn't go so well in america and then the second series they made the david brent character more vulnerable and showed that he was a bit human inside and that's when it kind of took off as a series because you know it's all i think like that's probably why the english series don't go on for years and years because they tend to just take a kind of slight monster figure like Basil Faulty. And you do see a little bit of a vulnerability, but it's hard to make it's that stretch when, when you know there's very little to him that's nice in, it, in amongst all that. So yeah, I guess, I guess it is quite interesting.
0: So you did talking Cop. you did this other show which I'm, I'll probably <laughs> spend about an hour asking about it. it was the twelve tasks of Hercules yeah. Terrace where Well,
1: I again this is just when I was kinda of depressed and broken up with my girlfriend and was really at a low. It's quite a complicated genesis and it wasn't an idea of doing a show, it just sort of fell into place. I started trying to do various things to pull myself out of this funk. And then I felt like I was being kind of uh, manipulated by Greek gods to recreate the tasks of Hercules, basically. So it was very loosely based on Hercules or the 12 tasks of Hercules. So, yeah, I did these kind of 12 stunts like parachute jumping and I dated 50 women in 50 days, which I'm guessing what you want to talk about. 50 different Uh, women? Yeah, yeah. Did they
0: all know what it was? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I literally spent two months... Going out every night with a different girl, getting drunk, and it was kind of amazing. The idea wasn't to meet a girl, or I actually thought, oh, this will just be an unpleasant task for me, or you know, or show why Her- Hercules impregnated fifty women in a night, which was the story it's based on, which wasn't one of his official tasks. But I thought it's worth bumping up. Uh, so I thought I'd go out with fifty women in fifty and second nights. I wish it had all been complete strangers. About forty of them were strangers, about ten of them were people I knew. But it, the rule was I couldn't have been out with them before. So, and yeah, how I was just, did you find the strangers? It just was massively easy. People were so into doing it. And it was very interesting about dating in this country that I think people don't do this. It was actually a really great way to date. And 50s way too many. But there's no pressure because it's like a stunt. So people are happy to do it to help you. But also, you know, I took people out and paid for everything. So that's kind of nice as well. But also it's a bit fun. It's something to talk about. And actually, because it's not like you've been looking at each other across the office and fancied each other ages. And then now it's this kind of slightly tawdry first date where you finally end up going to bed with each other. It was just like, this is for fun. But you immediately had something to talk about and you know yeah I was honest about the fact that I wasn't just pretending that I was on a date with them they knew what it was but weirdly because of that it was a really great way of, I didn't really think I'd meet anyone I met so many people I could have gone out with it was just insane so it was actually like this really difficult thing for me where I'd meet someone I really liked and not be able to see I'm actually doing a bit in the new show talking about just the way that comedy can affect your life and I met some girl i really liked but i couldn't see her again and, and then i was seeing at lunch she was going don't go out don't go to your date tonight stay with me i was going i've got to do the date. i've got to do the date." and so i kind of went and had this kind of nightmare date and the girl i liked met someone else the next day you know so it was kind of you ruin your life by doing this crazy thing so yeah i'd I didn't think girls would be interested in me because of what I was doing you know I just assumed they would kind of laugh at it and but then I don't know maybe it's because there was a competition element to it but I got really good at dating I've never been the kind of person who could ask people out I'd be the kind of person who got drunk and you ended up getting off with someone that's usually how my relationships began but it was kind of nice to just go out and date and meet people that you hadn't been put together because you were compatible. You've just been put together because you're both available to go out that night. And so you'd, I'd sometimes meet someone and go, Well, you know, this isn't the type of girl I'd ever go out with. fine. And by the end of the evening, you go, Wow, I really like this person. <laughs> and, you know, so it was kind of interesting because I think you have a type and stuff. But in the end, I didn't really, there's hardly any of this in the actual show.
0: You could write an entire book on this. I know. I mean, it was kind with of. With
1: tips. I know. I know. Well, I should have done at the time, but I, I kind of made this, I sort of said to the, everyone that I wouldn't ever write about them individually or anything. I mean, I think they wouldn't mind if I did. Again, it was that kind of thing where I said I didn't want to turn it into like being you know if a camera had been following us around it would have completely changed and I didn't want to take the piss out of anyone really and I didn't want to say oh this date was terrible although now in in the new show I am giving a little bit of a detail about one of the dates that went, went a bit weird but um, as
0: long as they're not identified, I know. Long as you I think so. I think detail. so.
1: I think so. Yeah. But it, again, it was a long time ago. I don't know how much of it. I would I just got so drunk. I was so ill afterwards. I can't tell you. It was just the most. i would never been. I was always quite good at drinking, and since I did that, I've never been ill quite. Oh, ever really? Because I just you. got drunk every single night. I kind of had a rule which I nearly always stuck to that if they wanted to carry on on the date, I would carry on. So if they wanted to go until four o'clock in the morning, it would do. But basically, it shows a lot about my life. Just shows where my life was. You know, I was sort of sitting at home a lot. I was writing a book about. Cox and my girlfriend had split up with me and I'd bought a house for us to live in and we'd broken up and it was quite depressing you know and and then I did this kind of crazy show that nearly sent me even more crazy but I think in the end it, it, doing all those things and pushing myself in directions you know doing a parachute jump was an incredible thing for me because I was just terrified of the whole idea of doing anything like that and realising it was that easy to meet women you know it kind of gave you just the confidence to kind of push on with your life a bit so I think it was almost like a show for me that one <laughs> where I did it and I did all these incredible things and it cost me lo- loads and loads of money and and, uh, and it was just something I had to do. But when I came out of it in the very end, I mean, it nearly, there was a point when I was getting towards, because I was doing the stuff and trying to write a show and get it ready for Edinburgh, and it was, the deadlines were all the same, and it was really stressful and I kind of nearly went nuts
0: but if you've got it all written down in the blog surely that's a potential book
1: I, I think the problem was that the people sort of too much like a Dave Gorman idea and I think at the time he was doing these books and I think you know and maybe even it was a bit of a Dave Gorman but it didn't kind of come out. It, it just grew organically rather than me thinking cynically or this would be a show I didn't even think about that to begin with but yeah I mean I did learn a lot about dating but I've probably forgotten most of it yes.
0: And around about the same time you started doing club stand-up again which you said you then really enjoyed. Yeah well that was
1: part because the Hercules show I did all these things and then I thought well why am I not doing stand-up you know I had this big fear about doing it and I thought well I've confronted all these fears and all this other stuff so why don't I go back to it so you know and and then realising I had a beginning of a wealth of material from the blog so yeah again that was really hard Though it was really hard to go back and even though I've been doing one man shows in Edinburgh and that were ostensibly stand-up, it didn't feel like it. You were know, people the, nice to you? Yeah, I mean they were. I mean I kind of emailed everyone. I got a list of all the emails of the clubs and said, could I possibly come and do a gig at your club? And they were, you might going, yeah, of course you can. You know, you're Rich Daring from, from Lee and Herring. You can come and do a gig. So I, I thought it would be harder to get going than it was. I actually just spent a year because I'd emailed all these clubs outside of London. That's what the list I'd been given. And I spent the first year just basically driving around the country with no rhyme or reason, doing these tiny gigs for pretty much no money, but just gigging four or five times a week and really tiring myself out and not doing much else. But that was the perfect way to do it because, you know, I'd learnt a lot in that first year and sometimes I was going in too aggressive and sometimes I was doing quite a lot of weird stuff. It was the show that was Someone like Yogurt where I, I did, like, four very protracted, long, strange routines that was almost designed to piss people off in clubs and actually that's how a lot of them came about. The yoghurt routine would just divide an audience so brilliantly that some people were just crying with laughter and just the longer it went on, the more they enjoyed it. And some people getting furiously angry about how could a man talk about yoghurt for 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes and that made it longer and longer because i would start discussing the way it was dividing the audience and you know the part of the point of the routine was to annoy people with a different sense of humor to mine and uh but actually doing that in clubs uh, was just again accidentally kind of phenomenally brave i had no idea what i was doing really and i kind of did this crazy routine which would be designed to upset people and and in doing that was creating interesting material but because i came back the first time i did stand up you were always so worried about trying to impress the audience and the promoter and you're torn between two stools trying to work out what you should do and then i just came back to and thought i'm going to do exactly what i want to do and if i play a bad gig in lincoln i'm never allowed to play lincoln again oh well Uh, so you know it was i had much more freedom to it and just kind of went for it and it was very nerve-wracking to begin with and i really think there was this residual thing from my student days with stand-up where I've still felt that stand-ups resented me or, or maybe I resented stand-ups a bit because of what had happened. But I quickly realised that I fit very well into the current circuit, much better than I did in the early 90s, partly because the current circuit has been quite heavily influenced by the work that me and Stu have done in the past. So, you know, you'd meet a lot of younger acts who you'd go, oh, you're great. And they'd go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I was massive fans of you or Stu. And you realise you've kind of influenced these people and then you can come back. And and weirdly, a lot of the time, I've learned from some of those newer acts, I've kind of learnt, things that I knew before but you know just a way of looking at the things and I think it was an interesting I think I started out a lot more aggressive and the first couple of standard shows are quite aggressive and quite angry and then you know I kind of was learning that you didn't necessarily have to go that way and that, so the, my last year's show was a much more gentle on the whole look at things and so you know it, it's been a really great thing to do and again I think reinvigorating because it also gave me a, a, just an outlet to perform before I was literally just going doing 20 or 30 gigs a year with whatever show I was doing maybe 50 gigs and now I was gigging 250 times a year, or whatever. So, suddenly you have a bigger outlet performing. and I was getting a lot of depressed a lot being at home writing and not going out and not seeing very many people and not having the outlet to perform. So, it's kind of nice to go out and just, even if it's 20 people in a club, you know, it's at least you're doing it. And those are the, my favourite gigs really now. I tend to still do the tiny little clubs. I'm not really interested in doing the comedy store or jonglers and stealing money out of proper comedians' mouths. Kind of like going doing the little clubs where you can take a bit more of a chance and not do gags and people will listen to you. Um, although sometimes you still do get some people not enjoying it.
0: Well, talking of that kind of stuff, of taking chances, you're doing something that's potentially revolutionary <laughs> with this sketch show that you're starting. Yeah. With. Do you want to just explain? Yeah. Well, I just—it's
1: partly because it's—it's it's so difficult to get things on the radio or TV. It just either takes a long time, where you have to go through all these committees, and then they'll change, and then you'll get on the radio if you're lucky, and they'll tell you you can't say that because it's too rude. And I just thought, why am I, for, especially for a radio series, why am I going through all these hoops to not really earn any money? And then have the work sliced to bits anyway. And I just thought sort of thought because of the podcast I do, really, it's just so immediate. We Which record.
0: I should probably mention the podcast is you do it with Andrew
1: Collins. Yeah, it's called the Collings and Heron podcast. And you just
0: record it through your laptop.
1: Yeah, we did one today, or should be available this evening. Or I don't know what time you're listening to this, but uh, yeah. So it's uh...
0: and then people download it for free. From yeah, iTunes. so it's, it's
1: all free, and we just you know we just talk for an hour. And that, again, that's interesting because I, I would always want to be scripted before, and this has made me realise I don't have to be scripted, and we literally don't know what we're going to talk about. And it's
0: all. very successful.
1: Yeah, well, it's going very well because people like it because there's no because it's i think at this time when there's a lot of censorship and a lot of people saying you can and can't do this we can just say what we like because no one's employing us and we're not no one can (laughs) sack us and we're just in my attic doing it on a computer so it's kind of you know it's a nice thing and i just thought why not try and do a stand-up show stand-up and sketch show is i mean i did a show on radio 2 called that was then this is now which was a kind of historical sketch show and with a team of people i liked but we sometimes get serious and we sometimes wouldn't i just thought what i really wanted to do was kind of a thing similar to the blog where I would just talk about what had happened to me that week and maybe illustrate some of it with sketches. And if I had an idea from the news, I could do a sketch about that and just do whatever I want. And so uh, I've realised if I go and record it in the Leicester Square Theatre, which is where I've done some of my shows, and if 400 people come and pay a £10 to see it, that will kind of cover all the costs and probably mean I earn about as much money as I would from doing a radio show anyway. And if they don't, then I won't make any money or I will lose money, but not that. There's actually hardly any expenses to it. So then you
0: do that and then you put it up on the internet. Yeah, so the
1: people coming to see it will pay for the production costs of it and then people can download it for free on the internet. And then so I can be completely current. Hopefully it'll go on the internet the day after I've recorded it and I can say anything I want. And also just a way of generating material. And obviously I'm not bad at generating masses of material week in and week out and you know that means I can do half now or I can do an hour and a half if I want if I have loads of ideas I can do a longer show and so it's just kind of interesting that you don't need broadcasters necessarily you know with this stuff and in fact a lot of what broadcasters do is impede you now rather than help you and especially in the current climate where they're so worried about you saying something wrong that as a comedian it's impossible to work like you go on a panel show and they go right you mustn't uh, swear or do this or say this and you're kind of going well as a comedian I need to be able to freewheel, and whatever comes out comes out and if I overstep a mark then you can cut it out that's your job if it really has gone too far but I want to be free to do whatever comes into my head And Do they
0: try and censor you before you go Yeah on yeah sometimes I mean, like
1: after, directly after um, the Russell Brand thing they were kind of going can you not even swear during the warm up and not even do bits that you know will be cut out because there's people in the audience journalists who will report that you said this in a BBC show or whatever so people have got very nervous about it and so it's just been lovely to have that freedom I mean there's a part of me that likes it because it's the freedom but there's a part I would love to do TV and radio and I love the BBC uh, but I kind of feel it might be sort of destroying itself and this might be I might be the man who starts the <laughs> starts the, the revolution that ultimately destroys the BBC or kind of damages it and what it is
0: or maybe just enhances it because well, some hopefully. people do get offended and yeah. some people don't want to watch just anything. yeah
1: but I think increasingly people will just have this choice of being able to pick this stuff out even from TV and radio it's not going to be schedules anymore and that's almost happened already it's just it's just going to be, oh, I like this, I'll watch this, I will you know I don't like this, I'll watch this. But then the internet just gives you that complete freedom to go, well, look, if you don't like this... I mean, you still get people who listen to my podcast every week and then email you and tell you they hate you. And you kind of go, you know you don't have to listen to it. It's there. Some people like it and you don't. Don't worry about it. I don't like you know most pop music, but I don't want it to be destroyed. <laughs> if it's giving other people some pleasure, then I'll leave them to it. If it's been played into my ears, then it's a different thing. It's only making it commercially viable, I think, is the problem for most people. The thing is, I don't really care about making money <laughs> and I make enough money from the other things I do to have a very nice life and so I'm really happy if I do 10 weeks of this show and I break even I'll be happy but I mean, there's a chance I might make a bit of money from it if loads of people come and see it but I'll then spread that around the people who are doing the sketches with me so it's about I'm in a lucky position where I do stuff that I like to do and I do it because I want to create something that I think is good and, and I'm lucky in that I get paid for, you know, I, I did, uh, You've Been Watching with Charlie Brooker. Which I
0: love. Yeah, it's a great, it's a brilliant it show. I mean,
1: he's fantastic. But, you know, I get paid very well for doing that. And that's only an evening of my life. And so if I could get enough of those things, I can sort of do whatever I want with the rest of my time. The podcast, some people just are confused going, why are you doing this? You can't be making any money. And we doing some live shows with that. And then you do make a little bit of money. But it's not about, you know, we just have a really good laugh doing it. And that's why it's good. If we were making money, if we were charging, then they would have a right to go, oh, hold on, this should be more professional and be good sound quality and not be filled with mainly rubbish. But because they're not paying anything and they're buying into it and it's just two mates messing around and having fun, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, you feel like it's your friends and you're part of it. And there's something very intimate and lovely, more so than radio, about podcasts. And that's what I really like about the internet, is that you literally do just listen to that on the tube or you're going for a run or just doing a spare moment on your own. And it's this beautiful... I mean, the radio is kind of like that, but it's this lovely... You listen to it wherever you want, whenever you feel like doing it. And But
0: also, particularly, I think, usually on headphones, so yeah. it's like these people are inside your yeah, head.
1: Yeah. And then you don't know what's going to come up, and comedy can be generally surprising because you can really say anything. So uh, I hope we haven't caused any real accidents, but people continuously tell us they've fallen off running machines or off bikes or (laughs) nearly crashed their car because there are moments and they're not they're certainly not all the way through which again makes it enjoyable but there are moments where me and Andrew will just be unable to continue because we're laughing so much at something that has occurred to us you know at the time so that's really what I want to do the show's called As It Occurs To Me the new show the stand-up sketch show which is kind of what it is so it's want to be able to do a show that i will write it but i will also have some freedom to mess around it on the night and also it's just it'll be rough around the edges and unedited so if something goes wrong that'll be in the show and then by doing that you're cutting so many corners and you don't need to spend any money and hopefully people will enjoy it but it'll be slightly better recorded than our podcast so we might be able to then sell it on a cd if i wanted to at some point when do you start doing that that's in uh, i think october the 12th or 14th or something the first monday in october uh, is the first one and then it's the ten. Mondays after that.
0: And people can find out about that from your website. Yeah,
1: I mean, all this stuff's on my website, com.
0: And so that's also where people can find out. We barely talked about your Edinburgh show. Yeah, I've an um, Edinburgh show. So ago. you're doing an Edinburgh show Hitler
1: Mustache. Trying to reclaim the Hitler Mustache for comedy. And having it all the time on my face. Which you have at the moment. How's that going? Um, it's all right. I mean, it's sometimes when something extraordinary happens, you suddenly go, oh, my God, I've got Hitler's moustache. What are people thinking? But actually, I thought people get angry about it and give me a hard time. Yeah, I feel quite unhappy a lot of the time because you feel you're being judged and people are laughing at you. But people, what is quite nice is the only reaction it really gets is people laugh at you, which is all right, because that's kind of what it's for. <laughs> and I thought people would jump to a conclusion and go, you're a Nazi, why are you get out of here? But no one has done that. I think a few people are a bit shocked and... I hope I'm not upsetting anyone by having, but but the truth is I'm just trying to look at why the moustache that's been worn by a lot of people, notably Charlie Chaplin first of all, is associated solely with Hitler and why you can't have the moustache. I don't like it. It's a horrible moustache. I don't want to have it on my face. I would love to get rid of it. But then again, it's one of these things that you have an idea and you run with it and and I've realised that there's something in it about the the way that fascists change the meaning of a symbol Uh, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do in reverse. I'm trying to change this symbol that's become a fascist symbol into something else. But with all that's happened with the the BNP and stuff recently it's kind of been it's suddenly become very relevant Uh, and it's about racism and about race and about all those kind of things you know and about offensiveness whether the connection between comedy and evil really because I think comedians and fascist dictators aren't that far apart in personality (laughs) but you choose one way to go and I think it's quite interesting that Chaplin said something similar that he wanted to do the great dictator because he understood Hitler he was the same as Hitler but they'd obviously gone in a different direction. But, you know, I think there's just so many parallels, and it gets a little bit frightening. I just watched The Great Dictator the other day, and there's a character called Herring in it. And you kind of think, this is really weird. I want to try and turn it into this uh, homage to Chaplin and try and make the moustache piece associate with Chaplin again. And it's kind of really weird that I've never seen any character called Herring in anything. And he's meant to be Gerring, so it's Herring, Gerring, and garbage, Goebbels, but... It's kind of just a, one of those weird coincidences that happen with like everywhere you turn, you sort of start to notice these little odd connections. So, so
0: Hit the Mustache, you're doing it at Edinburgh. You're yeah. also doing the live podcast. We're doing five then. days of the
1: live podcast, both at The Underbelly in Edinburgh.
0: And the information for all of that and for As It Occurs to Me and yeah. for the podcast yeah. and for everything else is all the on your website. And then new book next year. Too much books. stuff. There's a lot. It's good. <laughs> and, and that's all down at richardherring.com. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It was
1: great.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Marin. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.